Hello and welcome to the LARB Radio Hour, brought to you by reader-supported LA Review of Books. I'm your host, Eric Newman, and I'm joined today by my co-host, Medea Ocher. Hi, Medea. Hi, Eric. On this week's show, we're excited to be speaking with author Neil Patel about his novel, Tell Me How to Be. I particularly, I'm always a sucker for a gay coming out story that also might kind of be a romance. And then the extra cherry on top here was a lot of R&B references that I definitely resonated with, uh, which I think we actually forgot to talk to him about in this particular conversation. But yes, so I was definitely hook, line, and sinker for this novel, very much up my alley. Actually, now that you bring this up, I feel like this is a novel... I don't know. I don't know if I've read that many of them, but this is a novel that could have like a background Spotify list. Not to plug Spotify, I just mean like it could have a very playlistable, yeah, a music list, yeah, um, that you can kind of listen to as you read the book. That would also be a very fun listen. Yeah, totally. And because the book is kind of exploring at least from one of its perspectives, the experience of a queer South Asian man or a gay South Asian man, I should say, you know, that's a kind of story that we don't get to hear a whole lot about. And so that added, you know, another kind of interesting angle and kind of fresh perspective for this book. Yeah, I agree. Well, should we get to the conversation? Yeah, let's do it. Okay. We have Neil Patel with us on the line today. Neil is an author and TV writer based in Los Angeles whose debut story collection, If You See Me, Don't Say Hi, was a New York Times book review editor's choice and long listed for the Story Prize and the Aspen Words Literary Prize. He joins us today to talk about his debut novel, Tell Me How to Be. The novel opens as Akash, a gay songwriter in his 20s living in Los Angeles, returns to his hometown in Illinois in the wake of his father's death to help his mother, Renu, and his brother, Bijal, prepare to sell the family home before his mother returns to London. Akash is, you might say, the black sheep of the family, still deeply closeted and reeling from a failed relationship of his own back in Los Angeles. But he's not the only one keeping secrets. Renu is holding fast to a long-simmering love that she's told nobody about, and things are not as good as they seem for golden son Bijal. Alternating narration between Akash and Renu's perspectives, Tell Me How to Be is an intimate story about race, sexuality, and the secrets that keep a family together, but also tear it apart. Thanks so much for joining us, Neil. Thank you for having me. So Neil, I just wanted to start with how you came to the subject of this book. How did this book come to you? Why did you start? Well, I started writing it because I had to, because I was getting emails from my agent asking <laughs> where it was. <laughs> this was the second book in a two-book deal, which was different for me because I'd never had to deal with like a contract and deadlines and expectations. So, you know, I was naturally just living my life in LA and <laughs> not doing the work. And I realized I had to do something. So I went home to Illinois to my parents' house and I thought, let me get away from LA and all my friends and just like you know, lock myself in and write. And something about being home just brought up all these memories of my childhood. Mm -hmm. And I kind of just wrote through them. Can we talk a little bit about Akash to begin with and the difficulties that the novel explores about being queer and being Indian and also Mm -hmm. about being a queer Indian? Yeah, you know, I grew up in a small Midwestern town And 
there were really no, we were one of the first Indian families in that town. And so mm-hmm. in school, I was often the only Indian person in not only the class, but sometimes even the whole school. And nobody really knew, this was in, I think, the 80s. Nobody really knew what a South Asian was. So I felt like I was constantly having to explain myself to people. And there was this issue of identity. But then along with that, there was the sexuality. And I still remember when I first learned what gay was and that I was like outside a Taekwondo class because my mom forced me to do Taekwondo. And I was outside and some kids were making fun of someone calling him gay. And I was like, oh, what's gay? And then they told me and I was like, oh, and in my head, I'm thinking, what's wrong with that? And then I'm also thinking, oh, shit. (laughs) Right. And that realization that, okay, I think I'm probably gay because I like boys. And there was that struggle of dealing with the race stuff and being a South Asian. And that was kind of more public. And then this private realization that I'm you know, gay and that it's wrong to be gay. One of the things that I find interesting, at least in American culture, is that in American culture, we tend to see when we talk about race, we usually mean the kind of Black American experience versus the white American experience. And increasingly, I would say over the last couple of decades, that's broadened slightly to include the kind of Latinx experience or a little bit now in the last couple of years, I think more emphasis on the Asian American experience. The Indian American experience is one that feels like apart even from all of those experiences and so kind of siloed in its own way. And then particularly the queer Indian experience, I feel like we get almost nothing of, right? I can count almost on one hand the kind of films, and I'm not an expert, but that's part of the point, is that in terms of what's trickled through are films like Touch of Pink and My Beautiful Laundrette that Mm -hmm. kind of talk about the queer Indian experience, though that's usually in both of those films are set in London, right? So it's like they Mm -hmm. played here, but they're not really about America. And, you know, so I wondered if you could talk a little bit about that as kind of like a, it feels something like an aporia kind of in American culture. So there's like multiple levels of explanation that have to go on and that your character Akash is kind of wrestling with. Yeah, you're right. I mean, there is not much out there that kind of tackles the issues that queer South Asian people have. And I think one of the reasons for that is many of us are still in the closet. Many of us who have even come out haven't gotten to the point where we're fully even comfortable with our sexuality and where we can actually be open. You know, it's one thing to be out and it's another thing to be open. And I think when you grow up in a South Asian community, it's not just you and your parents. It's not this sort of nuclear environment where it's just you, your siblings, parents. There's a whole community of people watching you and observing your every move. And it's just like pressure cooker, you know, My parents, when they came to America, the first thing they did was they sought out other Indian people to become friends with because they left their families behind. They left their parents and it's a security blanket. But the the consequence of that is that it's stifling and everyone's in each other's business and everybody's observing what you're doing and comparing their kids to other people's kids. And so being gay is just something we didn't talk about. And we viewed it as kind of like an American thing or really like a white people thing. Yeah. So it was almost like being unraced, being Mm -hmm. gay, that Mm -hmm. you suddenly lost all of this stable identity that you had Mm -hmm. in your community as soon as you were different sexually. Yeah. And there's this fear of kind of being ostracized and exiled, 
you know, you work so hard to build a community to feel safe in, and then your child comes out as gay. So many Indian parents, they don't actually have an issue with people's sexuality. My parents were never homophobic. It wasn't like a religious thing where like, you know, sometimes you hear people whose parents are Christians. They're like, oh, well, that's, you know, a sin. But we never had that in our religion or our culture. And I never heard my parents say it. It was always about, well, we don't have a problem, but what is some random uncle going to think, you know? And are they going to look at us differently? And are we going to have to suffer the consequences of that? And so that being different, is that more about, since it's not actually a moral judgment, right? Mm -hmm. Is it more about this kind of imperative? And I'm sure we'll talk about this more later when we get to Renu, this imperative to kind of fit in or not be noticed. Mm -hmm. Is that kind of where sexuality becomes difficult to navigate? Yeah. My dad always told me, you know, don't make waves. And I think it's so interesting that he says that because I think as an immigrant, you're so new to this place. It's like being a new student at school. You don't just Mm. go to school and start creating all kinds of drama and like, you know, like pissing people off and pissing the wrong people off. No, you like, you got to like observe. You got to be cool. You got to like blend in. And so being gay is something, it's so different. And it's, you're basically owning this truth that a lot of people have opinions on or had opinions on. Now things are changing, thankfully. But yeah, it's bold to be out. And that's not something where we're not used to being bold and outspoken. And it makes people uncomfortable. Do you mind if I ask you about your own coming out story? I mean, after um, you sort of had this realization as a child, (laughs) what happens? Yeah. Well, I realized that, okay, this is not okay. So then I thought, Mm -hmm. I realized I had to keep this to myself. And I ended up keeping it to myself for a very long time. I think I was 29. I'm 39 now. So 10 years ago was when I first came out to like a friend. It was funny. It was at his bachelor party and he's straight and we're like at a strip club. And he's Good place. Really, yeah, yeah. It's a great place to come out as gay. And he's, he's really drunk and he's like, I just got to ask you something. And I'm like, I knew where it was going. And he's like, I just want to know, are you gay? And he's like, because if you are, I'm with you and I support you. And that was the first time anyone had ever framed it that way. I would get the, oh, are you gay? Are you gay? It was always like a joke or like something bad. But that was the first time someone was actually like genuinely saying, even if he was wrong. And so I came out and then it was weird because like we ended up talking about that the whole night instead of him like <laughs> getting lap dances. And stuff. <laughs> but then it took me several years before I could come out to my family. Because it was one thing, again, for my friends who were like me and were born and raised in America and got it. But to come out to my parents was a different thing. And actually, I didn't really come out to them. They found out because I did an interview when my first book came out. I can't remember where it was with, but I figured no one would know. And I was open about my sexuality. And I didn't realize my dad at that same time was eagerly Googling my name because I had a book out. And he read the interview and they called me at like 1030 at night. And you know, when your parents call you at 1030, it's either because something bad happened or you did something bad. So (laughs) there's no good reason to call that late. Yeah. 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 So once I realized that they were okay and it wasn't anything about them, I was like, okay, so it's clearly about me. And my dad was like, you know, we read this, like, is this true? And I said, yeah. And my dad said, that's okay. We love you. And my mom said, who else knows? (laughs) So (laughs) she was typical. She had to go into like typical Indian auntie mode and like be the PR person. Like, how are we going to spin this? Like, okay. (laughs) That's funny. I mean, well, something that struck me about this book is that 
so much of the book is about love and that many of the plot lines that sort of develop in the book around all of these different characters, they're really circled around this question of love, like who can I love and when <laughs> and how? And I don't know, I think we do talk about sexuality in that sense, but so often it's also confused with other things. And it seems to me like this book at least really tackles what it means to like love somebody in a way that's not allowed. And I wonder if that's something that you were thinking about as you were working on it, like this question of what it means to love someone. I totally was. When I wrote this book, I was aware of how homosexuality is viewed in mainstream media, on TV and in movies. And I find like it's very hypersexualized often. Like you'll see now you're seeing gay sex scenes on TV. Like I remember when I was watching How to Get Away with Murder and there were these like steamy bedroom scenes. And it's like, okay, well, now it's about that. But what about love? Because I sometimes feel people still think that being gay is a choice or it's mm -hmm. some kind of sexual thing or a fetish even. And it's really about love. And I just, for me to know that I was gay at seven years old, it's because I had crushes on boys. There was nothing sexual about it. It was just this strong feeling of attachment to another boy. I remember watching Love, Simon. And when I watched that movie, I cried, not even necessarily because of the film itself, but because I had this realization that I'll never have what that character has at, I think, 16 or however old he was, because it's too late. I was robbed of that experience. I didn't get to have a same-sex first kiss or, you know, a date to a dance who was a same-sex partner or a boyfriend. And I thought, well, if I can't have that, then I'm going to live vicariously with the characters and write about it. You're listening to the LARB Radio Hour. We've been speaking with Neil Patel, author of Tell Me How to Be. We'll return to that conversation in just a moment, but first, we have this week's book recommendation. I'm happy to be speaking with Tochi Onyubuchi, author most recently of Goliath, who has this week's book recommendation. So Tochi, what book are you recommending? Uh, the book that I recommend uh, and that I will take every opportunity to recommend is This Is How You Lose the Time War by Max Gladstone and Amal El-Mohtar. Uh, it came out, I want to say, 2019, um, definitely sometime over the past couple of years. Um, it's deservedly won a slew of awards. It's maybe one of the greatest books I have ever read in any genre ever. I don't know that I've encountered, and it's this, I haven't even described the plot at all, but- Yeah, I was gonna say, get me into it. <laughs> Tell me what the not, what it's about. So it's about these two uh, rival agents, Blue and Red, and they exist in various forms uh, throughout history, but basically they are on opposite sides of a war between two enemy forces. One of them is a hive mind. Another is a weird sort of intelligence life form. But the way in which their relationship develops over the course of human and inhuman history is just fascinating. It's literally the best iteration of enemies to lovers that I've ever read in mm. my entire life. And the prose, oh my goodness, the prose, like what Max and Amal did 
in that book. You, you ever read those books where you, you're going through and you hit sentences and you're like, I didn't know the English language could do that? Yeah. Um, oh, that's very rare, but wonderful when you find it. Yeah. That's this book. That's this book. And it's, I think also too, it's such a love letter to the genre uh, of speculative fiction. It just feels so good. And it's so, I don't know, as a craftsman, as somebody very much caught up in studying the craft of storytelling and of writing on both a you know macroscopic level, a structural level, but also a sentence level, it just worked. It was firing on all pistons. It, I'm speechless. Like I literally don't have the words to describe how good this book is. Um, and it's not even that long. Like that's the wildest part about it. It's like, <laughs> it, it has so much in it and it's not even that long. You, you can read the whole thing in an afternoon and your afternoon will have been made so much better for it. Oh my God. I'm definitely putting that on my list. How did you become familiar with the novel? You know, Max was a friend of mine and I'd known Amal through, you know, professional circles. And, you know, when the book came out, there was a lot of the word of mouth buzz about it. And people seemed to really, really, really love it. And it started, you know, winning these awards and everything. You know, I can't remember where I was when I, when I picked it up. It was still in hardcover. And I remember I was traveling for a festival back in the before times and, mm-hmm. I brought, <laughs> you know, and I brought it with me and I started reading it and I was just, I was like this, they wrote this book for me, you know? And that was another thing too, was it felt like a book that had been personally crafted for me. There were jokes in it that I felt were literally jokes just for me and <laughs> I can't remember the last time I'd felt that about a book. Um, and so I just, I was on, I was on the bandwagon. Oh yeah. That's, a, that's amazing. I love it. Can you give us the authors and title one more time? Yes, it is. The title is This Is How You Lose the Time War uh, by Max Gladstone and Amal Elkmatar. Thank you so much. We've been speaking with Tochi Onyebuchi, author of Goliath. You're listening to the LARB Radio Hour. Now, back to our conversation with Neil Patel, author of Tell Me How to Be. That brings me to another question. It's like, in some ways, so you and I are the same age, um, Neil. And I, as I was reading through, there's a, a subplot that involves Akash having a childhood friend who he is really close with and then it feels like it's more than just a friendship. And that becomes, I'm not going to spoil anything, a moment of kind of conflict and then eventually reconciliation. Well, I guess that is spoiling it, but not in the de- not in the details yeah. anyways. Yeah. Um, but that felt, on the one hand, so familiar to me. And I think, beca- you know, with caveats for all the things that were different about those experiences, but felt incredibly familiar. Um, you know, there was a high school friend that I was very close with that I didn't, e- I didn't even think like you're saying, I didn't understand it necessarily as being mm-hmm. gay. And I don't even know if that's what I would describe as what was happening there. But I didn't even realize that he was also gay until years later when I saw him on the cover of Butt um, Magazine. Okay. Um, he was a drug, he was a drummer. And I was like, wait a minute, I know who that is. Oh my God, that was just like best friend of mine <laughs> in high school. But, but all of this is to say, I wonder sometimes as I was reading it, 
if you feel that this story, like the kind of the narrative arc of it is generationally bounded, like do kind of today's young gay or queer Indian America or Indians living in America, do you think they have the same experience? Like, or are we all kind of experiencing something that is on the one hand, like a classic kind of archetypal coming out story, but might be different for today's youth? I do think it's different for today's youth. I hope that it is. And I think that it is, again, there just wasn't, when we were growing up, there just weren't a lot of conversations about sexuality. And when they did arise, it was negative, right? Like, Mm -hmm. I remember there was a time where as a boy, the worst thing you could be was gay. Yes. Not a bully, not a misogynist, not any of these other things, (laughs) not a rapist, not, the worst thing you could be was gay. Like, you know, and so it's not like that anymore. And I hear kids coming out at like 11, you know, I, I talked to a mother who she was like, I think my son's gay. He's eight, but I'm pretty sure he's gay. And she's like, she knows she was excited about it. She's like, I'm going to support him. And, you know, I definitely Mm. didn't have that. And I think, (laughs) you know, and it's interesting that you said that about your, your friend, because yeah, I had those friends where I didn't know. I was like, I just like this friend so much. They're my best Mm -hmm. friend. And like, I had to be close to them. And like, I would even get jealous if they got close to other friends and I realize now that that's probably because I had a crush on them. Um, sure, and there were yeah. people from my school who uh, came out later. And it's like, oh, if only I had known like back then and we could. But yeah, I mean, now you hear of same sex partners going to the prom. And um, so they might read if they were to read a book like this, like, they probably would feel differently. But then also maybe appreciate like what they have now. Yeah. One of the um, parts of the story here is substance abuse um, and alcoholism. And I was wondering why you wrote that into Akasha's story. Why is that a part of who he is as a, as a character? Yeah, I mean, I think um, substance abuse often is like a coping mechanism for people, especially queer people. Everybody always talks about how gays are so fun and they love to go out and they love to go party and go to West Hollywood. And it's like, you have to ask yourself, well, why? You know, what are they you know, trying to kind of uh, drown out or run away from. There is a certain level of trauma that gay people experience. I I can only speak as a man. We don't always, we're not always socialized to deal with that trauma. We're we're taught not to cry, not to, you know, be, show any weakness. And so we bury a lot of this stuff. And this story was personal in many ways. And I've had, I turned, I remember the first time I was drunk and just feeling I felt like everything that was bothering me no longer bothered me. And I felt confident. And I, I, I didn't realize I had anxiety. I had anxiety every day being gay because every day you're afraid that you're going to be outed. You're afraid that someone's going to say something to you. And I, I got a lot of bullying and stuff. And so I just remembered when I was drunk how I just didn't care about any of that. And it was so freeing. And I, you know, I have struggled with alcohol myself, you know, feeling like I need to drink to be in social settings because I feel more comfortable with myself. And I think you start to learn that. And then even when you do become comfortable with yourself and you come out of the closet and people accept you, but that learned way of dealing with things, it doesn't go away. The drink is still there. And I wanted to kind of explore that through this character who obviously has experienced trauma himself. Yeah, you know, one of the things that I I think there would be an easy way for you to write Akash as a martyr, 
right? As somebody who is just purely innocent and, you know, just beset by the world. But I think that what we get, and I want to talk to you about how the character developed for you, is that he's, you know, he has struggles, but there's also moments when I was like, oh my God, fucking communicate. Like just, yeah. just you know, and I'm and I'm not saying that those things are are easy to do. But for example, it's like, you know, he has his um the relationship I alluded to in the beginning that he's fleeing from in Los Angeles is to a, a white gay guy who's older than he is. Um, and amongst whose predominantly white social circle, you know, Akash always feels like he's racialized in really mm-hmm. negative, often fetishistic, even if quote unquote well-meaning. Um, in well-meaning ways. But, you know, at the same time, he's trying to end this relationship, not sure if he wants to end it. And then it's just like, return the phone call, just return the phone call. Mm -hmm. Or his frustration with his mom when he gets, you know, drunk and collapses at various social events. You know, I'm like, well, but maybe don't do that, you know? Uh, But at the same time, it's like you can't fault this character because he is dealing with so much. There's so much that he's trying to keep inside or keep secret or keep everyone happy and constantly feel like he's failing. So can you just talk a little bit about how Akash developed on the page for you as you began writing the novel? I'm drawn to people like bad people or people who do bad things. I like to start with that. I like to see the ugly side of a person because I think there's always a prettier side. You just have to get to it and you have to right. wade through all the muck. It's maybe easy for me because I've been the bad person. Like I was the bad <laughs> child, you know, I was the child that didn't do anything right. I got bad grades. My teachers didn't like me. I talked too much in class. <laughs> and mm-hmm. um, so I, I like to start with that. And then I think, okay, well, why is he like that? You know, why is anyone the way they are? A lot of it has to do with our experiences and the things that we're hiding from people and the things that we're ashamed of. And then that's when I kind of got to the core of who he was. And and yeah, he doesn't communicate. He's an avoidant person because I think that's how he was raised, you know, to always kind of like to keep things in and not rock the boat and not make any waves. And, you know, I think when you're gay and you're brown, that's hard enough. So like, you don't want to go being honest and forthright with people if it's going to upset them. And you kind of just, it's better to run away and it's better to not return the phone call and to just hide. And similarly with Renu, I mean, I think there would be a version of this story where I think it would be easy to paint her as a kind of total villain. You know, oh, she doesn't understand. She's constantly harping on both of her sons to Mm -hmm. do this or be this or specifically maybe not do this, not be this. But then as her story unfolds, you realize... This is a woman who has had lots of things taken away from her, who has had to compromise lots of things, and who sees compromise and attunement and adjustment, or kind of in a more severe way, we might say like self-amputation, as a way to get along. So in some ways, she's also, when she approaches both Akash and Bijal, you know, both of her sons, she's operating that way out of you know, out of love. Like there's a way in which for her, that is the way to be and to be safe. Mm-hmm. Um, so you, can you talk a little bit about Renu as a character also that kind of has all those complications? Yeah. You know, Renu is a person who didn't have like agency and didn't have choice in her life. And I think she learned that 
certain things are the way they are and you can't really fight them and you just have to go along with them. And if you do fight them, then there are consequences. And so when she's arranged to marry her husband, Ashok, you know, she has the opportunity to fight back, but she doesn't do it. And I think that created within her a lot of resentment. And so even though she is, you know, not the best mother, you know, and she's hard on her son and um, withholding oftentimes of love and affection and validation, it's because she's living a life that she didn't choose for herself. And she can't get past that. And she doesn't have a voice. And so she keeps things bottled up in the same way that Akash does because he doesn't have. And, and you know, as the story progresses, we realize they're actually a lot more, they have a lot more in common than, than they think, even exactly, though there's this yeah. like ocean between them. It was fun writing her though. I, again, I'm drawn to people who don't always say the right thing, but they're honest with themselves, at least in her inner monologue. Like everything, like I always say, like my mom, she'll go to like dinner parties and she'll play that role, like ever saying all the right things and absorbing people's shade and stuff, and not saying anything. And then the second she gets home, she just unleashes all of it. And she's like, can you believe she said that, that bitch? And like, <laughs> and I'm like, always like, why can't you be like this? Like this, the best stuff my mom says is when no one else is around and it's just us. And I'm like, why don't you just say that there? <laughs> but she could never do that. <laughs> yeah, it's funny to me because, it, you know, I, I think that even the first sentence of the book that says, my mother always told me to be a good boy. I suspect she knew that I wasn't sets up this relationship between the two characters and the sense that there's some kind of opposition between them, but they do have so much in common where there's so many instances of her sort of, like you just said with your mom, holding back, not revealing what it is that she's actually thinking, not actually allowing people to really get to know her in a way, right? That all of the women who surround her, who she really disdains for the most part, but they don't ever get to see or glimpse who she might actually be or who she is. And both of them are so protective of themselves in that way. I wonder what you think about when we allow ourselves to be vulnerable and how we might do it. Because well, there's a lot of things for both of these characters to be protective about, but there's also times when they just have to be vulnerable. And and I wonder what you think about vulnerability, I guess. I mean, that's a kind of a big question, but it seems like a big part of who they are. I think part of the reason they are the way they are is because they're afraid of their truth. They're afraid of that messiness. So when Renu holds back who she is and doesn't allow people to truly get to know her, I think it's because she's afraid of that person. Because that person is not what everybody expects. That person doesn't fit in with everyone. You know, that doesn't, person doesn't always say the right thing and do the right thing. Um, and I think in the same way, you know, Akash feels the same as a queer person. And I think vulnerability is only possible. I mean, of course, there are instances where you can't help it and you are vulnerable. But like, I think you have to really no longer be afraid of who you really are to be able to let people in. And that takes a lot of work. 
So as we kind of wrap up here, um, I'm wondering kind of what's next for you? Like what sort of um, things are you working on next? Or, you know, I know you work in TV. So are you, there was a part of me that I was reading this. I was like, ooh, this would make a really great like ad- adaptation. Um, so yeah, where are you headed from here? Yeah, I, I actually am adapting it um, for TV now. I'm working with some producers and writing the pilot. Um in-house and then we're going to hopefully find a network partner. So I am, yeah, I'm kind of, because, you know, the, the takeaway most people have is, oh, this would be a great film, but I, I love the characters so much. I want to keep them going. So I'm kind of changed the story a little bit to fit a TV format, like a half hour dramedy type of thing or hour long. Um, so I'm working on that. And then I'm working on a third book as well, which is different. I feel like this book was so emotional and I just think I'm like tired of like crying and I just want to do something. <laughs> yeah, I want to do something different. So I always like to infuse humor into everything. So it's going to be funny, but it's also like darker and kind of twisty and juicy. And yeah. Well, we're looking that forward sounds, to that. That sounds fun. Yeah, yeah. for sure. Stay tuned. <laughs> we're also um, tired of crying. <laughs> yes, exactly. It's 2022. Please, no I know, more there's tears. a lot to cry about. And yeah, I think we all cried a lot, drank a lot, cried a lot. Um, we've been speaking with Neil Patel author of Tell Me How to Be thanks so much for joining us thank you thanks for listening to the LARB Radio Hour subscribe to our show on Apple Podcasts SoundCloud, Spotify wherever else you get your podcasts if you like the show please rate us on Apple Podcasts to help us get the word out and we'd love to hear from you the producers of the LARB Radio Hour are Medea Ocher, Kate Wolf, and Eric Newman. Our executive producer is Alan Minsky. Our sound engineer is William Broaden. Editorial production by Jake Levins. Our intro music was written and performed by Imogene Teasley-Vladen. Teasley-Vladen.